whenever we do episodes like this, I'm always very nervous. Like, you know, like, listen, <laughs> not, I'm, I will never be famous. Like, nothing is ever going to like. Life is like, no, life is not that good to Are me. Are you worried we're never going to get like the HBO I was just like, now? Like, yeah. con- like, like the, um, the Two Broke Queens, like your famous problematic HBO special. Yes, exactly. That's that exactly now. what I'm worried about. <laughs> And welcome to your fave is problematic. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Kristen. And this is a podcast where you're in your favorite things. So deal with it. Yeah. I've been waiting for you to bring that one back. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so deal with it. Like, <laughs> like you said it once, and I felt like it was very iconic. <laughs> All right, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> deal with it. This is like we tell you at the beginning, you know what you signed up for. Like this is what this is what this is. So you know, slight tangent. I went to this workshop yesterday uh, about podcasting with a bunch of producers, and like the person who was running it is like actually a pretty famous podcaster. And he was like, "I don't understand why podcasts do this thing where they tell you what it is like at the very beginning." And I was like, "My talk, my show totally does." No, that. I get it because like if you're onboarding a new list. Oh, anyways, yeah, no, this is not a conversation to have on the podcast. But I know. I understand why. I think it's important if you're a new listener. Welcome. We just told you what we do here. Exactly. <laughs> um, but anyways, yes. that's beside the point. Uh, that's what we do. Um, let's, I guess, do the thing, huh? Let's do it. Yeah, sure right? not. Okay. Uh, current event time. So uh, well-loved actor who we all adore, Ian McKellen, apparently put his foot in his mouth a yeah. bit oh, boy. earlier uh, this week. Um, so I, he was appearing on the Queer AF podcast, and he was kind of talking about, I think specifically, people he had worked with who have been accused of sexual misconduct, specifically sexual misconduct against minors, and was kind of asked to, he, he basically, so he made a statement about specifically Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer, um, and he said, quote, with the couple of names you mentioned of people I have worked with, both of them were in the closet. Hence, all of their problems as people and their relationships with other people. If they had been able to be open about themselves and their desires, they wouldn't have started abusing people in the way they're being accused. Um, so essentially saying that, well, these men abused young boys because they were closeted. Uh, and that's obviously... A problem. Yeah, that's not a great <laughs> take to have. And I love Ian McKellen. He's done a lot for the LGBT community. Like he was, you know, kind of an, an not maybe one of the earliest voices of like, you know, famous actors who were out as being gay. But I mean, he, but certainly in the UK. Oh, yeah. certainly in the UK. And he definitely came up pretty early on. And like once he was out, he was super vocal. Like I remember he was like, uh, I'm Magneto and Gandalf. So if you don't like gay people, fuck you. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Eat a dick, son. Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, he didn't say that. I said that. But. Yeah. <laughs> that was a subtext. Yes, though. it was. You know, and this is interesting to me, too, because the Catholic Church has been in the news a lot recently. Mm-hmm due to more um, priest sexual abuse scandals. And I think a lot of the rhetoric that comes up around 
that situation is also again repressed well, sexuality. Yeah, repressed sexuality. And well, if these guys could just like get laid, then they wouldn't have to abuse young boys. And it sounds like such incel bullshit to me. It does. It does because I think it. And and so Ian McKellen did apologize for what he said. He he put out a statement on Twitter where he basically was like, my point was that like he he was like I was speaking to a queer audience, like I was on a podcast targeted at queer people. And my point was, like, own your sexuality, be out, be proud. That's what's good for you. Don't repress yourself. Obviously, like, in these situations, there was a power dynamic at play. Like, we need to acknowledge that power dynamic. And we should always believe the people who are accusing people. Like, we should always believe the victims was basically his point. And, like, he apologized. And, like, he was basically like, hey, I put my foot in my mouth. I did not word that very well. Yeah. I'm very sorry. And, you know, his... His apology seems like genuine and sincere to me. It does, but I think it's 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 particularly harmful because already I think you have a lot of people whose homophobia is based in this conflation between pedophilia and homosexuality, right. particularly with men. And that is such um, a harmful and evil and insidious stereotype about gay people um, that... You know, I think that we've we've done a lot of work to try to root out mm-hmm. over the last few decades. And so for Ian McKellen to even just kind of casually or like, you know, even if he stepped in it a little bit and that's not what his you know intention was, which I'm sure it wasn't. But for him to conflate the two is really, really harmful, especially on a queer podcast, especially coming from a gay man. Yeah, well, especially considering the way Kevin Spacey decided to come out. That, (laughs) given that context where he was just like, well, I didn't do this, but also, by the way, I'm gay. Like, the jokes about, like, there's no bad time to come out, Kevin Spacey, hold my beer, were very, very apt, right? Like, no, you found the one bad time to come out. Yeah, my dude. The one bad time. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. Like, the conflation... Even the, like, implication that, like, if gay men are closeted, they're going to abuse boys is harmful because there are a lot of closeted men who don't. Who don't. Who don't do that. Sexually right? abuse anyone? Yeah. And children in particular? I mean, okay, so Ian McKellen's an old white dude, so yeah. there is, like, a certain... I don't want to say I'm giving him grace because I'm not, but there is a certain amount of, like, well, you're an old white dude, so of course you would say that, that I sort yeah. of, like, build into my expectations. Do you it's know more of, like, listen, I would be shocked if you didn't hold this opinion. <laughs> yeah. uh, exactly. Exactly. Like, more. it's not like me giving him a pass. I want to try... Like, I want to try and maybe parse a little bit of what the of the point he was trying to make you know what what point could he have possibly been trying to make other than like it's harmful for gay people to be closeted or to be forced into the closet and but i guess i just i don't know how how those how you connect those two things in yeah his mind. i suppose yeah i guess that's a good point how do you connect those two now that you asked that question because, yeah, because he, like, in his statement, he was like, I was just trying to, like, encourage people to be, like, true to themselves and be out. And there's, like, no shame in that. But, like, there's a big difference between being, like, out as, like, yes, I am a person who, you know, is queer. And a difference between being, like, I am a person who's attracted to minors and children, right? Like, those are two different things. And we need to treat them differently. Yeah. I wonder if it's a holdover just from so much like deflection, you know, because he's he's 79 now. Uh So, like, I'm sure he spent a lot of his life deflecting various stereotypes about gay people, some of which being, you know, like 
that they're all pedophiles. Yeah. So I wonder if some of it was like built in like reflex to that, which doesn't excuse it. But like, I can imagine that if you've been deflecting that for like, what, like 50, 60 years, like you'd develop some muscle memory. I guess that's what makes it all the more confusing for me though, right? Is like, if you know that like, that homosexuality is not about like the abuse of people who are more vulnerable or younger than you, then why would you, why would you even like begin to, to connect the two in this situation? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that like the best that I can do is to maybe him saying that like, you know, that saying that like hurt people, hurt people and like forcing people into the closet is a means of like abuse of gay people. And so they're like, and so those individuals were, acting out in mm-hmm. a, in that way like that's the closest i can come to this and even and obviously that's a pretty specious claim yeah like, <laughs> yeah um, i guess that's a good question yeah i wonder if there's like an i don't so i don't know this is one of the things where it's like there's there's really interesting generations and in how like the lgbt movement has like developed and attitudes around it how those have kind of developed with like different kind of like how we have like waves of feminism it kind of feels like yeah we have like different waves within the lgbt movement right the Methodist church made a really horrible ruling earlier uh, this yeah. week on gay marriage. And I am a person who was affiliated with the Methodist church for a really long time. And I'm still involved in that community. So I've had a lot of discussion about that. And, you know, like I posted on someone's wall and I was like, Oh, well like as a queer person and like this older woman was like, I'm uncomfortable with the phrase queer person. And like, to me, it wasn't that she was uncomfortable with the fact that I was identifying as queer. It was the word queer. And I was like, oh, I get that because for a long time that was a slur. The podcast Nancy has an excellent um, uh, episode about this. Actually, it was just like, it came out like a week or two ago and it's got Helen Zaltzman from The Illusionist. Oh, yeah. She comes on and talks about it. But, and it's exactly what that was about, about like how older like LGBT folks really have a strong aversion to that word or can have a strong yeah. relationship to that word because it was a slur that was thrown at them. Which I totally understand. Yes. And like, and, and so like, and that was the, th- the implication I got from this woman was it wasn't that like, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that you're not heterosexual. Uh, it was, I'm uncomfortable with you identifying as queer right. specifically. Um, and so I wonder if this is like a built in, like older, like previous wave of the LGBT movement thing of like, oh, well, like they do that because they're repressed. Being like repressed sexuality. Like if, right. if you if you repress it for so long, it will manifest itself in these kind of in negative, these harmful evil ways. ways. Yeah. I wonder if it's like a, a holdover from that, which again, isn't an excuse because that's I can false. I can kind of see but like I, how, yeah, yeah, how that dated argument. I'm trying to, argument. I'm trying to parse it because I love Ian McKellen. And when like this story came out, we were immediately like, this is what we have to talk about because Ian McKellen is super a fave. And well, that, but also, best. but like, it's like, if, if that's the argument that he were making, it is literally harmful to himself and everyone else in his community. So you exactly. to try to understand maybe like where the disconnect happened in his argument, I think is worthwhile. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. that Ian McKellen is going around saying like, well, you know, just, uh, that's just part of being gay. Especially <laughs> if you keep it in too long. You just, you yeah. Know. You just molest children. Right. And I, I don't think that's what he was trying to say at all. No. And yeah, again, well, you know, that's, this is what we do here is we put things in context. Right. Yeah, so exactly. I think if like, you know, Pat Buchanan had said that I'm pretty, <laughs> I could rest, you know, assured that he was full of shit and asshole. Ian McKellen, I think is just like he said, is just not yeah. stating these things very well. Um, on a only slightly like tangential note, I saw um a headline the other day. <laughs> it was from Pat Robertson. It was from the Seven Hundred Club. It was like Pat Robertson quote like 
I'm being dominated by a homosexual or something like that. <laughs> the caption just said, that's a weird way to say you're a bottom. <laughs> and it made me laugh so hard. I have like this deep like hatred for Pat Robinson. Oh yeah, he's the worst. He's the worst. Um, but I have like personal hatred for him. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, it that's just pretty made good. me laugh really hard. Um, <laughs> Um, cause he, yeah, fuck Pat Robertson forever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I don't know. That's the whole sitch with Ian McKellen though. And I don't really know how to parse it. I, I want to think he just kind of like stuck his foot in his mouth, but I'm inclined to believe that, especially since he, he seems to get why people are upset pretty quickly. Yeah. And he apologized. And like I said, his apology seemed really genuine. He was like, yo, I totally just did not phrase this well. Like I did a bad job. Um, so I'm inclined to kind of like believe him and give him a little bit of a pass, but it's, I, you know, I think it's interesting that like when people say things with their mouth, um, it kind of sometimes like reveals like internal like biases and prejudices and like internalized things that maybe they don't realize. And yeah. I think that's worth examining. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. I also think that part of it probably had to do with the fact that he personally knows these two people. And right. I think that when you are a celebrity speaking about another high profile person or another celebrity, that you try to speak about specific things that you know about that person in general ways. Mm -hmm. And that I think can kind of maybe confuse how you make your argument. Yeah, totally. And it seems like maybe that might be a little bit of what happened here. It's definitely harder when you know the person, in my experience, when you find out that they've, like, done something horrible. And you're right. like, I don't know how to parse that, like, this person that I know uh, who's a good, like, who has been always good to me, like, I don't know how to parse that they've also sure. done these bad things. And like, I think most of us have been there, even yeah. outside of the context of speaking about someone who is high profile, just someone that we know well. Who's yeah, exactly. Who's something horrible. And, like, these are people who probably worked with for a good chunk of time and so like parsing that is difficult and i i get and i respect that i'm happy to see that he did apologize though i am too he's generally a good egg i think like he seems yeah. like a good one and um him and patrick stewart have the most pure friendship <laughs> in the world so ian so ian so ian <laughs> you shall not pass <laughs> uh anyways uh yeah so that's ian mckellen everyone let us know what you think um as per usual but that's our i guess our our hot news for the week um and this is our hot take segment that's what we're gonna call it from now oh, on we Not should call it our bit. hot take segment <laughs> why are we 75 episodes in and just coming up with this idea oh that's such a good idea that's okay we're constantly evolving liz <laughs> we're learning and growing each day truly okay so let's get into it for the week though this is one that showed up on our google Docs. so someone some of y'all specifically requested this you guys wanted us to talk about streaming services. Yeah. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all that jazz. HBO Go, the whole, the the whole, whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any streaming service. So that's what we're going to do. Well, Kristen and I rely heavily on streaming services <laughs> for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, that's how we watch all the TV shows and movies we <laughs> talk about each week. I don't remember the last time I had cable. It's been... <laughs> It's been at least seven years. The last time I had it was because I lived in a guest house and my landlady had it. So yeah. I also had it because she paid for it. Yeah. That's the last time I had it. And that was still in like 2013 or something. Yeah. So it's been a minute. Yeah. 
But I mean, I think like obviously cable is falling by the wayside as people move over to streaming services more and more and more. You know, I think it's worth mentioning like at the top before we kind of like dig into each of the streaming services and their various problems with them. Uh, there are a lot of good things that come out of them. Specifically, they've been really good about putting like green lighting TV shows and movies that would probably have never been produced by a major network before. Yeah, it feels like um, Netflix and Amazon Prime, I would say in particular, have kind of like they've stepped into the the role that HBO kind of took over maybe 10 or 15 years ago yeah. when it was like premium content that like stuff that was really kind of gritty and more cinematic on television that you you couldn't show on network TV. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, and not to say that like HBO has like fallen back on that because they haven't. They definitely haven't, yeah. Um, but it feels like Netflix and and Amazon Prime in particular kind of like took it and ran with it. Well, and they're doing, I know like, in terms of like representation, I feel like Netflix in particular is doing an excellent job yes. um, in terms of how they um, like the shows they greenlight and that kind of stuff. Like I know like Sense8 was a Netflix show that uh, is like the cast is super diverse. They have a trans woman who's actually played by a trans woman who is in a lesbian relationship. They have like it's funny to me, like all of the like ethical non-monogamy Facebook groups I'm in anytime someone's like what's a good like TV show with ethical non-monogamy everyone's like sense eight because yeah. there's a really awesome um male male female triad in there which is like a structure like that we never see represented in TV shows is like two men and a woman in a triad um and so like again super diverse like it's and it's just a really good show frankly um Hulu obviously picked up The Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. which was really applicable <laughs> when they fixed it up i have to say i i was i've been seeing the trailers for season three and they've got that like last scene where it's like all of the handmaids standing on the washington, washington mall Mon- yeah. but it's like a cross instead of the washington monument and the first time i saw it i about damn near had a panic attack yeah that's um, real. i was like that's too real no thank you I don't know if you've watched you on netflix recently i have not uh it's really fucking good it's fucking terrifying it's about a stalker Uh um and it's too real and like the opening monologue literally made my skin crawl but you know like transparent on amazon prime which is like one of the first high profile tv shows about a trans person Mm -hmm. which there are issues with that show i promise someday we'll do an episode on transparent um we're gonna get to it at some point because it does it's been requested um, but like, again, one of the first high profile shows with a trans right. about about the trans experience, like there's just a ton of stuff that they're producing that would never, ever have been greenlit. And by, I think like, a in particular, studio. you know, with Amazon Prime and again, Amazon Prime and Prime and and, um, and Netflix. And I mentioned those two just because they seem to be two of the streaming services that are really leaning into creating their own content as opposed to buying the licenses and the rights right. to other folks content. Um, but uh, they and Netflix in particular have really gone a long way in kind of democratizing, particularly when it comes to feature filmmaking, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving um, people of color and uh, women and femme presenting people opportunities to direct and to create new content and, uh, you know, and to have like, all people of color casts that aren't like you know yeah. just kind of ghettoized into like the black section or uh, the, the Latinx Netflix one yeah yeah 
Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it is. Well, it's based on a movie, but yeah, but like but yeah. the the series is it's, is a Netflix, Netflix series. Yeah, yeah um, and then you know, and I think that we're seeing that, like you know, fucking Roma just won best foreign feature at the yeah. Oscars and best director, and Netflix did that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think that it's shaking up the kind of uh, your kind of the kind of typical Hollywood system in a way that we can talk about later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I think yeah, it was important for us to say up front like. There's a lot of good that's coming out of what's happening with the streaming services. Right. And I also think it's important to mention up front just because I think everything that I researched about these streaming services was viewed through this lens, at least for me, of like, yeah, there are these problems, but like the content that they're putting out is not just like quality content. It's also really important content in terms of leveling the playing field for marginalized groups yeah to produce. Just, just democratizing those opportunities yeah for sure. exactly so i think that's important to say up front and well, now we can dig in your ass now we can dig in um before we get in do we want to just like quickly touch on kind of the term binge watching yeah which came up kind of with the rise of netflix like right like the rise of the netflix tv show i think house of cards was really like the tv show where i first started hearing about people like binge watching it right okay um, and I've seen some talk kind of recently about how binge watching is a problematic term, uh, largely uh, reaching back to the fact that like binging is typically associated with like either binge eating disorder mm-hmm. or binge drinking, which is also alcoholism. And, you know, like. I think that's worth considering in because like language matters, words matter, right? And I think that's just the thing that's worth considering when we use that language, because like eating disorders are deadly and are like one of the leading causes of death for like women under a certain age. At the very least, it feels um, it feels insensitive to kind of use it so cavalierly. I do think it's important to think about these things. Right. right. Um, and I think I, I, I like we I don't know that we need to get into a big discussion about it, but I think it's just worth considering. I know I've kind of tried to like weed it out of my language. It's one thing to just be like, I'm not doing anything on Saturday, so I'm just going to like watch eight episodes of this TV show, (laughs) which is what I did yesterday, and that's fine. But to kind of use the same language for like a like crippling disorder or disease that like kills people, I don't know, that that doesn't sit well with me, um, especially like having known people with eating disorders and that kind of stuff. So maybe that's just me. With my own personal baggage, but no, I think, I it's, think worth it's I considering. think I think even if it's not maybe even if you know you think that um or if one were to think that that's you know kind of a, a stretch of an argument, I I think that it's always worth like reevaluating like where language comes from and mm-hmm. what it's it's used for. And when someone is telling you that the language that you are using is potentially harmful to to certain communities or to people. It is always worth listening and hearing that argument. Yeah. You can come down on that whatever way you want to, but like, it's always worth hearing people out and like understanding that like, Hey, this language is hurtful. And then you can make a decision on your own about whether or not you give a fuck about it. Yeah. You know, for um, sure. and that's a different discussion. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there for everyone to consider. Um, Cause words matter. So uh, binge watching, maybe consider taking it out of your vocabulary because eating disorders literally kill people. Yeah. Okay. But shall we get into some of the specifics of some of our streaming service faves? Let's. Uh, let's just start with the, the big one. Let's just start with Netflix. 
Sure. Netflix. Netflix. Uh, well, Netflix is kind of the big dog when it comes to streaming. Do you remember when Netflix used to be like the service that just would mail you DVDs? Yeah, because when I joined Netflix, <laughs> it was the service that mailed me DVDs. That was when, when Brad had it, too. Because yeah. we're still like grandfathered on Brad's like, you know, like Netflix account from like 2009 or something like that. I need to know if people still use Netflix for that purpose. I see it occasionally if I search for things, and they'll be like, "You can like order this I'm like, DVD." Who the fuck I'm like, still does that? I'm like, no, I'm just gonna go to Amazon Prime and buy it for two ninety nine. Like, I mean, I guess it's stuff that they they can't acquire the license to to stream it. So they, but they still want to be able to offer it to you. But like, I don't know a single person no. who still has the like streaming plus D, like I haven't seen DVDs. a mail in DVD since at least I guess it'd be Blu rays at this point, but still maybe. I feel like Brad still did that in, until like 2013. I was like, really? You're still like in DVDs? Yeah. But he also had a flip phone until like 2017. <laughs> I was going to so. say like what, last week? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to shake you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true though. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Netflix. I think, uh, okay, first thing. Um, so Netflix, as we all know, likes to watch our viewing habits. Mm-hmm. That's That should be no surprise to anyone. Well, okay, there's there's two stories about this. The first one is, of course, Netflix fucking watches your viewing habits. Why are you surprised? But also, like, that's what you're signing up for, right? Like, part of the part of like the whole conceit of Netflix <laughs> is that when literally when you make an account and you sign up and before you've done anything else, it's like, have you seen this movie? And like, tell us all the movies that you've seen and rate them. And t- you know what I mean? And yeah. the idea is for like, net- it's like Pandora or Spotify. The idea is for it to like understand you and your tastes so that it can do a better job of recommending content to you. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of a controversy in like December of 2017 um, when that just wonderful, wonderful film, The Christmas Prince, came out. Did we get drunk and watch that as a we family? definitely did. We did, and it was a great time. <laughs> it was great. We decorated for Christmas. It was lovely. Um, but so around this time, Netflix tweeted out, uh, to the 53 people who've watched A Christmas Prince every day in the past 18 days, who hurt you? <laughs> Which, to me, is pretty fucking it funny, It is pretty actually. funny. But a lot of people were apparently, like, really, like, outraged by this tweet because they were like, oh, my God, Netflix is watching my my viewing history and i'm you like are that's... literally accessing their <laughs> server in order to do of yeah of course they, they are <laughs> i don't understand why people are like are surprised by this it's like the people who are like and listen admittedly i used to be that person my house is <laughs> my house is basically like the starship enterprise where you could talk to things and like <laughs> lights turn on and like the temperature changes and shit like that and that's just because my boyfriend is like crazy about that kind of shit and it freaks me out or like i remember the first time when he set up alexa and like and i was like it's listening all the time how does this not upset you and he was like you have a cell phone they've been listening and i was like fuck you are not wrong well, about the thing this is, like when the snowden leaks came out they were like the government's listening to us all the time i was like yeah, they are. Come on. I've known this since I was 10. I know. I think that it's just been harder for some of us to accept than others. That's fine. But that's kind of my point is like, oh, of course they know that you've watched it like <laughs> every a, a, day, yeah, every yeah. day for the last like 53 days. Like, of course they do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but that was a big kerfuffle. And like, I don't know, like some people found this problematic to me. It was like, maybe just read the terms of service that you agreed to when you signed up for Netflix. Just assume at all times that like that you're being watched. that you are being monitored. Big Brother is watching you, and it's fine. Uh, listen, it's not part fine, of me is but... also <laughs> really depressed that I just said that sentence. But this is this is the no. timeline in which we live. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like I I don't want it to come across that we're like downplaying the severity of that. Yeah, because <laughs> I think we're both existentially horrified by it. <laughs> yes, we are. But I think. 
think we've but we also... have to tamp it down in order to survive. Exactly. And I think it's just like a fucking course they're watching you. So like, let's let's not be surprised. So that was a little bit of a kerfluffle for people. Um, not so much for me. For me, it's like yeah. everyone's watching you, whatever. But uh, another thing that kind of came up was that um, people kind of started to notice that the so you may have noticed on your Netflix that the cover imagery for like TV shows and movies change. People were noticing, though, specifically um, like specifically black people, basically, that like their TV shows and stuff that would get uh, recommended would like the cover art that Netflix would show with them would have like black people on it. And then they'd like watch the movie and they'd be like, those black people were in this movie for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, like, Netflix is basically fessed up and been like, oh, yeah, we change our cover art based on, like, what kind of movies you watch. Like, if you, like, watch a lot of rom-coms, like, then, yeah, we're going to show you cover art that has, like, the two romantic leads of the movie. And right. if you like action stuff, then, yeah, we're going to, like, show the guy with the gun or, you know, like, whatever. And they'll still show you this, like, they'll still recommend the same content, but, the like, the image that you see for that content changes. Exactly. But there was this issue of them, like basically like like it was specifically egregious and noticeable because again people would watch like a movie or tv show and be like those black people are like basically not even in this movie why was that on the cover like yes. they, they are inconsequential to the plot why do they exist right and i'd be like well we think you're black so so like the this happened with me i watched a movie called i think it's called mississippi damned and the reason i watched it is because i think it was one of um it was one of Tessa Thompson's first movies. Okay. I, I, listen, I could be wrong. I'm almost certain that it was produced, if not directed, by Ava DuVernay. So it was like one of her first films. And I like Ava DuVernay of, and Tessa Thompson, like I'm solidly here. For yeah, exactly. Things. So I, you know, I've been hearing a lot about it. So I found it on Netflix and I was like, great, I'll watch this movie. And then I came back, <laughs> I came back to Netflix like the next day. And it was like, and here's the thing. It was like a very kind of like serious indie film that had a lot to do with like poverty and you know just like it was kind of like a little bit of like a tragic film but there was nothing that was necessarily particularly a like black about it like right. quote unquote black about it right other than the fact that it's like a, it just happened to have black people right yeah uh, and be directed by a black woman anyway come back to netflix like the next day and it's like because you watch mississippi damned why don't you watch like you know <laughs> fucking freak nick hood picnic six and i was like what the fuck is happening here like a movie so diametrically like polar opposite different yeah. from what the fuck i watched but they were like well they both have black people black and they seem to really enjoy seeing the negroes on screen so maybe you want to watch this too and i was like this is this is really fucked netflix like what yeah. the fuck that <laughs> like if I watched a movie like Mississippi Damned, you should be like, oh, would you maybe want to watch Winter's Bone, which was an, another excellent film about kind of like poor people struggling. It's like right. another tragedy, except it's about Appalachia. That is a recommendation that makes sense, right? Yeah. Not fucking like just like, do you want to watch some black exploitation? Like, yeah, another Tyler Perry film, right? Or something. It just it. So yes, this does happen. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it happens as frequently it may be like i feel like they got a lot of shit for it and so maybe they, they did, did a little like jiggering yeah. to their their algorithm there <laughs> but for a while it was pretty embarrassingly bad yeah it is always well my favorite is when you like think about an item and then like three days later like mm -hmm. everything on the internet is like were you thinking about buying this you're like how did you know, did you know? yeah netflix does that too though and that's fine <laughs> <laughs> um 
So, okay. A lot of the other stuff with Netflix we're going to kind of get into involves business practices on their end, which I think is important to discuss because they're, I, well, I mean, like, I think a big news story that's been going around is how they made, like, a several billion dollars or something and they're not going to pay any taxes this yeah. year and i do think that like so a lot of this stuff is kind of like garden variety like evil corporation bullshit right um but some of it i think particularly like hr practices um seem a little bit more netflix specific and um nightmarish yes uh well we specifically like to talk about radical transparency <laughs> which is their whole steez sure let's do that <laughs> So, okay, Netflix in their corporate offices kind of operates under this thing that they call radical transparency. And the idea is kind of that, like, everyone gets to know what's going on. Everyone's in the know. Which sounds, like, brand-wise, great. It sounds great. And I think, you know, like, I've worked certainly in corporate structures where you feel like as an employee you don't have any say. Um, you don't really understand why the higher-ups are making the decisions they are. Um, like, I understand that, like, on paper, radical transparency sounds super, super great. Uh, some of Netflix's, you know, <laughs> practices seem questionable, though. Um, and there was, like, a big expose that sort of, like, came out about this in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and so, like, we'll just, we'll just go through some of their practices. Um, so one of the most notable ones they have is what they call the keeper test. And this is kind of how they determine if they want to retain employees or not. Uh, and so so just, I'm sorry, just to be clear, because first I couldn't, I couldn't read the wall street journal article. I couldn't get it to open for me. Oh, weird. Um, but um, so is this just like an arbitrary thing that happens uh, every once in a while, or is it like when an infraction happens? It's basically just like, so okay, the keeper test is basically uh, the idea is that when managers are evaluating employees, the bar they hold them to is, would you fight to keep this employee? Not just like, is this employee meeting standards? Are they getting the job done? Would you fight to keep this employee if like another competitor was trying to hire them? This, you know, this was applied to like reviews, but I think also just like in general, like, because we'll kind of get into stories about how in a little bit about how, you know, like people felt like they were constantly on the chopping block. There was like kind of this constant like fear and pressure of like, I'm about I could be fired at any minute because of this keeper test. And then there was even um, there were even fears from upper management that like they were pressured to fire so many people to make it look like they were upholding this keeper test and that it wasn't just like, oh, all my employees are genuinely doing a good job because they're all good employees. They kind of felt like they had to be firing people every so often to make it look like they were upholding this. So, you know, like there was kind of like this standard for their employees, which I get like Netflix is still kind of a startup. Like they've been around for a while, but they still kind of operate like a startup. They still feel like they're a startup. Um, they still that definitely still seems like the company culture they're yeah. operating which in. Which is a whole other issue. That's, itself, yeah, that deserves yeah. an episode in and of its own. Okay, so but like my question is, so like as far as the keeper thing, mm -hmm. are there like is there any other metric other than if the individual who is your boss would fight for you, right? Like, right? Like, is it just like I I think they're doing a good good job, and I personally like them, so I would fight for them, or like does fighting for them like is it like a like a yeah? Well, are there is there a rubric like <laughs> I I from what I understand there is no rubric. Um, so from this Wall Street Journal article, they said many employees say that they see the keeper test as a guise for ordinary workplace politics, 
Well, some managers say they feel pressure to fire people or risk looking soft. Um, and then uh, it goes on to talk about how they're after people were fired. There are basically these postmortem emails and meetings to explain why people got fired. And, you know, like a lot of people view these as awkward or kind of as like this weird theatrical thing where like dozens or sometimes even hundreds of people were basically being like aired this dirty laundry about like why a person was let go. This seems like a just opening yourself up to well, to making your company pretty vulnerable to like if any of those emails got out. It feels like any of those terminated employees probably would have a pretty good case for wrongful termination. Yeah. I, oh, I suppose that's true. Especially yes. if like the idea is that like there's no rubric for what it means to like for someone to be a keeper. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's just like at the discretion of your boss. And so like if they just decide they don't like like your face one day or some shit, <laughs> they're like, you know what? Like they're doing a great job, but like their face really bugs me and I would not fight to see that face every day. <laughs> So, and then like, there's a series of emails, company wide emails, apparently that are just like, well, you know, like, listen, I had a neighbor who had that same face and it really just got under my skin and I just like triggered I me. And so rid of them, yeah. Right. Like, how are you I, not I'm opening sure yourself up I'm to sure there's some sort of rubric? Um, the article doesn't get into like more details about like, this is how they evaluate people. But like the, the, like, I think the takeaway is that it's a very high set of standards. And then I think part, I think part of what they're trying to do with this radical transparency thing is like, we're trying to be very clear about like why someone is let go, yeah. which like, I mean, like at my job, when someone gets let go, we just get an email. It's like, Hey, they're not with yeah. us anymore. Please be respectful during this time of transition. Like that's the email we get at my job. <laughs> and I think that's what most folks get. Although yeah. I did work at a company where the, this is not, this is actually really fucked up where the CEO like emailed, literally everyone else in the company except for the person and he hadn't even he hadn't even let the person go he was just like rest assured we will be letting this person go sometime in the near future oh no and we were like uh this seems wild (laughs) and then she she never was let go And so, like, that's a thing. Can you imagine working at a company that, like, is literally hundreds of people and everyone else at the company knows, knows that someone's fired? about to get fired? And, and it, it was just it was it made things very, 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 very uncomfortable when you had to deal with her just being like, well, is she fired yet? Like, <laughs> it was real wild. Um, no. Oh, God. I think for me, the biggest issue with this is the keeper test i mean yeah okay so like netflix is a corporation period right and like dealing with that kind of like culture you know i've worked in a corporate culture before and a big part of it is like you know they want you to be like confident at your job but like a big part of it that i've always really been uncomfortable with is this idea that you have to fit within the company culture yeah and listen i get it but like Fitting within the company culture 99.999 times out of 100 when you're in a in a corporation means fitting like essentially assimilating to white male culture exactly right and so if you don't fit in with that then or if you like if you bump up against it or fuck sometimes graze up against it in any any meaningful way then the issue becomes not how well you're doing your job or about like the accommodations or like or the way that your manager like deals with you, it becomes about you being a problem, right? Like you standing out and you like disrupting the feelings of other people. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, when you're really just typically doing your job and, and that I think is, 
I don't know. Well, I mean, obviously it's a problem, but that's, I think the biggest part of this to me is because I mean, like you would have to assume that the majority of people who are making these decisions are people who are white and male. Yeah. It sounds like they had a few um, women who were in executive positions. Uh, A few things about that. Um, So actually one of their marketing vice presidents who was a woman, she was fired in 2014 and she was essentially told she was fired for not firing someone else on her team fast enough. Um, She felt like she was being penalized for trying to help someone. um, And that had been seen as a sign of weakness. So she saw an employee struggling and went, I want to try to help this person because I see the potential in them. And uh, Netflix was basically like, no, you should have let them go. So we're also going to let them go you go because you didn't make the right call also the the idea that like a sign of weakness so again like that's again if 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 not being weak as a part of your company culture that is inherently like gendered and sexist exactly well i mean that's the thing we kind of talk about you know about the different like management styles a lot of times between like men and women right traditionally is like um, you know, like there's this masculine idea of management where it's like you do this and you like crack it's very com- and yeah. Like, yeah, you and like, the line or no. Women tend to be more interested in mentoring people. And like I think we're seeing a shift in that. I know I personally have had a lot of like mentors in my life who have been men and who've definitely enjoyed like taking me under their wing and like showing me the ropes and that kind of stuff. I've also worked in really non-traditional industries though and haven't worked so much in yeah. like big corporate America type jobs. So that's also probably got something to do with it, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it just feels like there's no way if like, basically, if not, you like the way that you are, the way that you, the, how well you're doing your job and the metrics that you're meeting for your job and your job description or whatever, if that's not good enough, but if it's just like, I, you know, as a, a person of color or a queer person or a female or non-binary or femme presenting person. Like if I don't like, if I can't make the white guy in charge of me happy, right. then my job is gone. That is inherently fucked. Yeah. And I mean, there were definitely people who said they felt like this idea, this keeper test was essentially just, it made them feel like they were afraid of being fired every day when they came into the office and you know, how do like, you retain good talent that way? Like, what well, is the purpose of and this? And that's the thing is, there was a there were they kind of had a meeting, and someone like brought this up, and they were like, "Hey, you know, like I feel this way," and you know, like, "Oh, like who else feels this way?" And you know, like a few other hands went up. And this they meeting. were all fired the next day. Uh, well, and then like this, uh, this the vice president of publicity, um, her name is uh, Karen Barajan, basically said, "Good because fear drives you." Like, there's like, which is like, I think a, I think a thing really in startup culture is this idea of like oh like good like fear because like we're on the edge and it's go 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 all the time but like i don't think that's a productive work environment for people (laughs) pretty much what you have described is i don't know textbook fascism yeah like like, you know i don't want to say that netflix is a fascist organization (laughs) but But maybe they are maybe they have a lot in common with fascist organizations yeah if if all of this is true yeah, well, and, you know, then they have these emails after firings that can, you know, go out to, like, hundreds of employees across multiple divisions that they can get, like, really specific calling out their flaws. And, you know, a lot of employees said they felt like it just invited more questions and gossip rather than, like, actually provided any sort of transparency about why a person was let go. Are there any guidelines for how you give this feedback? Or is it just, like, I have to listen to fucking Chad in accounting tell me about <laughs> how, like... He thinks that when I said, excuse me, I had an attitude or some shit. And that means I deserve to be fired. Uh, As far as I can tell, uh, there were no guidelines for these emails. Cool. And, you know, so there were also 
these systems in place for employees to receive feedback as well. And it was like, again, the idea was for like this feedback to not, not be contingent on rank. So like you could theoretically give feedback to your supervisor, or even your boss's boss, or, you know, like all the way up to the CEO. Like that, that's the idea, which on paper sounds great. But like some departments would do like these like round tables where you would all like go sit in a conference room and just go around and like give everyone's like, I like this and I don't like this, which sounds like, look, I'm a person with low social anxiety. Like I am cool with like getting criticism from other people. That sounds a tedious as fuck. B my idea of hell. Yes. Like just in a conference room forever critiquing and praising a bunch of your coworkers. I love my coworkers. I work with amazing people. I don't want to fucking do that. Like that sounds horrible. Also, how do you not get that? Like if you're the if you are the highest ranking person in the room, like it doesn't matter if the people if your subordinates right. are criticizing you, like they have no power over like whether or not you change or whether or not you keep your job. Like the, that only works if the power dynamic is equal across the board, right? If you're working collaboratively on a team where you all have the same rank, but if like, if you're criticizing your boss, yeah. they, they don't have to give a shit about that. But what they can do is take it personally and fire you. Exactly. And so it doesn't, it just doesn't, it create... doesn't work. Also, like I can't, like I literally, Again, I keep relating this back to where I work because my my job has a very like distinct company culture too. I literally trained my boss when he was a new hire. I still don't know that I could look at his face and be like, "You need to do this better." Like, yeah, like you know what I mean. Like we're buds, but I like I still don't know that I could do that. Um, which actually like kind of brings me to the next point is that um one of the town executives um for Netflix actually said that. So their company's hiring decisions were based most, I guess most places kind of try to base about 80% on like hard skills. What, what is on your resume? What have you done before? What can you do for us? Um, and they do more 50% hard skills, 50% cultural fit, which, you know, like what are the implications of cultural fit, especially in a corporate job where culture is straight white man, right? Right. Like, what does that mean? And I think, I think, I think what makes it for me especially tricky with cultural fit is like there are no metrics to measure that by, right? Exactly. It's just like, do we like you? Exactly. Like, again, like I work for a company with a really distinct cultural, our company culture is really important to us. But like, that's not like half of the reason we hire people. We hire people because they can do a good job. Right. If they fit in with us, like even better, like that's great. But like, it's not just because we're like, oh, well, we like you. <laughs> Which like they're like what are these metrics that we're using to hire people on if we're saying cultural fit like what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, I think that yeah, that's the problem is that if it's not outlined, then it can be whatever it is you decide. It can change. Mm-hmm. You can fit the culture one day, and then the minute that you the culture changes and you don't know or you change and they get upset, like you know, it's it's shifting goalposts, and yeah. that's that's really I can't imagine working in an environment that like that. At least like with most corporations, like you know that like if you're straight edge and like assimilationist and like pro white dude, that you're, you're probably, probably you're fine. Yeah, but like if the goalposts are always shifting, then for your expectations as far as like how you know your interpersonal reactions. 
that's got to be a lot of extra stress for what seems like no good reason. Well, especially because, you know, as we find with shifting goalposts with like minorities, the goalposts always move further and further out. Right. They very rarely benefit marginalized groups. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, yeah, they never benefit marginalized groups. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're further out, in fact. Unless determined by law that they have to. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think uh, that's kind of a problem and super questionable. Also. The executives allowed everyone to see everyone's salaries, which I'm kind of of two minds about this, right? So on one hand, I think I know some workplaces ban people from talking about compensation, and I think that is a problem. I'm not sure that's legal anymore. Oh, really? I think that that has that gone by the wayside. Yes. Well, no, I think that some companies still essentially like say that, but I don't think that you can like legally that you can be terminated or like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's not a thing that, that the law protects anymore. Right. And in general, I'm very pro people discussing salary and compensation for work because uh, the whole don't talk about how much you get paid nonsense is how like women and minorities and like people of color, that's how we've perpetuated the wage gap essentially. Right. right? right. Is that like, no one's talking about how much they're getting paid. And so then like, you know, like I think a lot of like women have had the experience of finding out like, oh, well, like entry level Joe Schmo, who like has only been here for six months, is getting paid the same as me, like who outranks him and has been here for three years. Like right. I think a lot of us have had that experience. And part of that is because people are like, don't talk about money. And so in general, I'm kind of in favor of having like disclosure of, you know, how much people get paid. But, you know, in, with this situation with Netflix where everyone was allowed to see salaries, it specifically it was executives were allowed to see everyone's salary. So it wasn't like company wide. It was just like higher up management. Oh, well then. Yeah. And so some of them said they felt like it disrupted the dynamic because they felt like it affected their like knowing that like person A got paid more than person B affected how they treated those two individuals if that makes sense okay i don't don't understand why this is exclusive to executives i think if it were across the board then yay it would maybe make a little more sense i agree and but yeah it seems like it was specifically to executives Hmm. not just everyone um but and i can also imagine how even if it was company-wide how that could still be a little more awkward yeah right like if you look at you're like oh man like dumbass brian in the cubicle next to me like he can't do jack i have to fix his work all the goddamn time but he gets paid five thousand more a year than i do like i think that like so i i know that there are companies that kind of like get around this a little bit in a creative way that i i think um makes a lot of sense which is that it's not necessarily that people's individual salaries are out there in the world for the rest of their coworkers to see. But what there is, is a compensation like grid. So mm. everyone gets a base salary. And then there are like, you can accrue points based upon your experience. Mm. And a certain number of points is equivalent to, you know, an X amount of extra thousand dollars per year salary. Sure. So like you can see exactly why you're getting paid what you're getting paid. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and somebody else could also look at that grid and go, well, okay, well, this is what I should be paid based upon like the number value we've assigned like this experience or whatever. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you know what your coworkers getting paid unless you are intimately acquired with like acquainted with their experience. But yeah, it seems like it was just for executives, which is strange to me, but that's fine. And so that also again leaves me with some questions about why is it just executives and again it seems like it was a mixed bag. Some people felt like it helped them leverage for underpaid employees, but others felt like it made them 
view employees differently based on how much they were getting paid. Um, I think particularly in regards to that keeper test, right? Like if they were looking at an employee and they're like, oh, well, I'm paying them like way more than this other person. Why? Like they're yeah. like, I would fight to keep them at, at $60,000, but I'm not going to fight to keep them at 75. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. So it definitely colored their perception of that. Gotcha. 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 Um, again, we're getting a little bit away from radical transparency, but there's still some other weird shit that Netflix is about. They gave large cash sums to several executives to buy houses in the Bay area to quote, help them focus on work. They opted not to do the same for lower ranking employees, which as we all know, housing in the Bay Area is a super fucking expensive. It is. Um to the point where, you know, like a lot of people who work in Silicon Valley are like fucking like renting campers and sleeping in parking lots and stuff and showering at the gyms in their work facilities cuz they don't want to commute like an hour plus from yeah. wherever yeah. is affordable. Uh, yeah, again, that it seems, seems like pretty, typical corporate bullshit. Right. That seems like, like pretty typical. Like, and they do it to attract like higher level talent. Right. Um, um, but it's also like, motherfucker, we're paying you like, you know, we're paying like $500,000 a year. Yeah, you can buy a goddamn plus. house. Like, you can buy a house on your fucking own. Oh, this is one that I thought was particularly worth mentioning because I remember this making headlines when it happened. So, um, Netflix began offering paid maternity and paternity leave in 2015 up to a year. Which was a big deal. I remember when this hit headlines because it was one of the first companies to be like, hey, we're giving paid maternity and paternity leave up to a year to all of our employees. Which, uh, you know, if you're not a listener in the U.S., that's still not a guaranteed thing we have in the U.S. Because not even a little bit. we hate people in this country. <laughs> the best we um, have is a guarantee that you won't be fired if you take six months off after you give birth. Yeah. But that does nothing for. But that's um, me. you get paid. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing for the parent who doesn't give birth. Right. Doesn't exactly. even get paid. Like, yeah, it's all garbage. So the language, though, in this policy was basically trusting that employees would use their best judgment on when to return. And basically people were like, oh, they're offering up to a year. They're immediately like, well, I'm going to take a year, which, you know, makes sense. You yeah. have a new baby. You want to spend time with it. You want to, like, be there for your kid. If you're getting a paid year, why would you not take, take the, the year? year? Um, but apparently a lot of executives kind of talked about trying to rein it in and now, and it kind of morphed into this language that was intentionally misleading. So like if they had an employee who was going to be gone on a maternity or paternity leave, they'd be like, oh, well, like most of our employees take eight months. So like they were basically trying to encourage, like they're like, most people take four to eight months. I hate these bullshit tests. Like if you want, if you're, if I get fucking four months, then say four months. If I get eight months, I get, give me fucking eight months. Exactly. If I get a year, give me a year. If I come back early, that's my prerogative. But like, don't, don't penalize people for taking advantage of the fucking benefit you offer. It's like when you, I don't know. It just I totally agree. Me nuts. Well, it's the same way to me when like comedies offer like paid time off and then like, your manager gets all like butthurt when you're like, hey, I'd like to actually use some of my pay time off. It's like, well, yeah. no, like this is my pay time off. I get to use it when I want. Like I'm going to go on a vacation. Oh, thank you. And exactly. It's like, don't offer me these benefits if you don't want me to take advantage of right. them. Because like I'm that bitch who's going to be like, uh, yeah, I get a year. I'll see y'all fuckers in a year. I'm exactly. going to go give birth now. It's been nice. Uh, <laughs> it's been nice knowing you. Yeah, exactly. And so – like that's the double speak there is obnoxious and shitty and I hate it. It also um, feels like a trap, you know? It does. It totally feels like a trap. And it feels like they're going to find some way in their keeper test to say that you're not worth fighting for, right? Yeah, because well, you know, like I would fight for her, but like, you know, she opted to take ten months when really most people only take eight, so I don't want to fight for her anymore. Exactly. 
Um, so fucked. Oh my god. Nef- yeah. yeah. Like honestly, this sounds like a nightmare. It does. It does. And I would never want to work for Netflix now, frankly. <laughs> so uh, the last thing with Netflix to kind of like just real quickly touch on is they were definitely touched by the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, and their response to it has been not the worst, but also maybe not the best. Yeah, they could have done a little better. Yeah, I mean, like, when the Kevin Spacey news broke, uh, they kind of very, like, you know, famously were like, uh, yep, nope, we've stopped filming on House of Cards the last season. Like, they straight up wrote him out. Like, I still haven't watched the last season of House of Cards. I need to watch it just for Robin either. Wright. But, yeah. Yeah, like, I do appreciate that, like, nope, we're just gonna kill Frank Underwood and we're gonna <laughs> let her be president. Sorry, spoilers, yeah. I mean, like... It's, it's been a few years. It's, down. Yeah, it's, it's been done. It's fine. But, you know, also, like, Danny Masterson was um, on The Ranch, which was a Netflix mm-hmm. original show. And he was actually written out of it when the... Um, there are literal police records about him being accused of rape. Yes. And so, like, that wasn't news. But when it, like, kind of hit news headlines again... He was written off, uh, but also apparently one of the executives was like confronted by one of his victims when he was just like out and he said to her face that he like didn't believe her basically. And that's cool and maybe not great for publicity. Um, But, you know, like we kind of on the Dave Chappelle special, like, you know, we kind of talked about like, why did they like buy all these Dave Chappelle specials when he had like just like really put his foot in his mouth and that kind of stuff. And we talked about that on our Dave Chappelle episode. So that's yeah. to be clear, like that's I think that's that's a little bit of a different situation because Dave Chappelle's not been accused of any kind of sexual misconduct. Absolutely. Um he just has been accused of having some incredibly problematic views. views. Yeah, sorry, I lumped that under sexual misconduct. But um and it's not the same. I just wanted but, to like, clarify for yeah, the audience. No, yeah. Totally. That's an important clarification to make. <laughs> Um, but, you know, like, yeah, he had some, like, really problematic, like, views about, like, trans people and stuff. And they kind of, like, stood by him and gave him, like, three specials. And, you know, yeah. that's – and aired specials that, like, be- had content in it that they knew was going to be controversial. So, you know, like, they've handled and mishandled some of those, I think. Um, it just it, – it does seem a little arbitrary. Like, if you think you were going to draw the line at, like, we are – writing this person out of a show or discontinuing a series because someone has been convicted of something heinous, Mm -hmm. then like, that's one thing, but it seems like what we're dealing with now, at least so far, both the things that you've mentioned are um, so far accusations, right? Like no one's been convicted of anything on one hand. Oh, I guess it probably, I mean, like obviously the accusations matter as well, like the severity of those things. So for instance, like Kevin Spacey immediately got shut out of house of cards. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard Netflix's response at all to master of none. Yeah. I was gonna say, I haven't heard anything about Aziz Ansari and that was a very different situation than I think our like the Kevin Spacey or the it, yeah the like Danny let's Masterson. be clear like both things wrong wildly different things yeah but yeah like, I haven't heard wildly. anything about Master of None but like maybe clarify you know well especially because again I think Netflix kind of gets touted as this thing that's like giving like a platform to marginalized voices and like I think like a lot of us are like oh yeah like Netflix content is generally like really woke yeah, right like yeah. I think that's kind of how like I've viewed a lot of it and so. Uh, kind of the like waffling on some of this is a little a little frustrating. Um, did you want to talk about uh, Monique being lowballed by Netflix real quick? Ooh, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, so um, there was a controversy I think like mid twenty eighteen or so, uh, where uh, the comedian Monique uh, talked about how Netflix approached her to do a comedy special, and um, she was encouraging people to boycott Netflix because she said that they only offered her $500,000 for the special with some really questionable terms. Um, she was pretty upset uh, because 
And I think, listen, I think rightly so, because Monique has been a comedian for like 30 plus years, um, you know, and she was saying my my the, what you offered me was nowhere near what you offered comedians who have been doing this. Maybe. And like, even if you argued that they were higher profile comedians, comedians who have been doing this longer, uh, just as long as I have, um, for instance, like Dave Chappelle, I think got paid like 20 million dollars for his special. Yeah. Chris Rock got paid something similar. Amy Schumer was offered like eleven thousand dollars. And I think 11 million, you mean? Sorry. 11 million definitely 11 million <laughs> I was like 11,000 11 million dollars sorry I was looking at the, the figure that they offered Monique which was in the thousands um you know Monique's been doing comedy longer than Amy Schumer's been alive yeah right like it's kind of wild Monique's got a fucking Oscar yeah I like like even like the discrepancy between 11 million and 500,000 is like it's so big <laughs> right like that's 20 22 times more money for Amy Schumer than Monique. Yeah, exactly. And so she was like, well, hey, guys, what's up with that? Like, why won't you pay me more? And they essentially were like, well, you know, uh, you don't have the same audience that these people have. And that's true, but certainly not like 22 times smaller yeah, exactly. than Amy Schumer's audience. Um, well, but and, also the terms that they asked her to sign yes, were really hanky. They were really hanky, but I do want to kind of emphasize that she specifically says that essentially that she felt like she was being paid less because she was a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. And because her comedy, if you've ever listened to Monique stand up, it is like, it. I guess what people might call ethnic more ethnically centered comedy sure at least like in in her career it has been kind of like very like focused on on black culture and and whatnot um and but yeah you're right the terms that they offered her were really pretty awful um just to kind of like quickly get into the specifics i believe that um she would if she signed the contract with Netflix like for 24 months after her special premiered, she wouldn't be able to tell any of the same jokes. So like say she does this Netflix special, they give her five hundred thousand dollars. She can't then go on tour and tell any of the same jokes yeah. for two years to like continue to support herself. Which when you think about it, like if you get a check for five hundred thousand dollars, half of that's gonna go away with taxes. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then you have to pay like your manager 10 or 15 percent or however much that I mean, like she's going to walk away with it from this thing with, I don't know, probably a fifth of what she actually what that check actually is. Totally. Um, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then for you to like have worked and like worked on those jokes for such a long time and not be able to use any of that same material to continue years? to make a yeah. living for two years. This is a part of the contract that they offered her. I think another part of it was like for 12 months after the special premiered, um, she wouldn't be able to like negotiate or tape another comedy special with another like with like HBO or like Amazon or whoever else might be offer her a deal it sounds like she could have but only if Netflix passed first so they had to have first dibs oh okay whatever she wanted which is still which but I mean like if HBO comes in is like hey we're gonna offer you like five million dollars or you know uh, even like the amy schumer 11 million dollars it's like well why wouldn't you take that right and instead? that means it's a lowball her lowball you yeah right exactly so i mean like if hbo says we want to pay you 10 million and netflix is like well we actually want first dibs and we want to pay you another five hundred thousand dollars you're still fucked yeah exactly um and so she spoke out about this and she actually got quite a bit of criticism you know like a lot of money gets a lot of criticism about just generally well, not taking people's shit, like not being willing to take to play the game, sure. quote unquote. Um, but I thought it was really important that she spoke up about this. And Netflix kind of like never acknowledged that they had done anything inappropriate here, that like mm-hmm. these practices were like essentially like financially crippling, like for for her, for someone in her position, if that's how you make your living. Yeah, absolutely. That's a Netflix sitch. Yeah, that's mostly hinky business practices. 
Yeah, um, which is kind of across the board for, for yeah, Rosalia. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah. sure. I couldn't find that much about like, well, Amazon, Amazon is going to need its whole own episode. Yeah, I'm Amazon sure. has got to have its own episode. Yeah, but like, I'm sure like Amazon and Hulu have practices that are equally questionable, but like the idea of like radical transparency is just so like the implication or like the the um, implementing of it is so strange to me in the way yeah. that they execute it. I, I just don't understand it. Would you, would you like to talk about Hulu briefly? <laughs> yeah, let's let's briefly talk about Hulu. So I really only had like two things with Hulu. One of them, and I will preface this by saying that this is for me. Was it qual? Is it does it qualify as hearsay if someone says it directly to you, or is it hearsay if you heard it if, from someone who heard it? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, I'll make it clear. I am a member of an actors group, and one of the members of this group talked about um his potential. Essentially, like he was cast, he was offered a role on a show that he did not explicitly say was Hulu. I am guessing <laughs> it was that it was Hulu. It was heavily implied it was Hulu. It was heavily implied, but I want to make clear just that it was in case. never. I don't want to like fuck anybody yeah. over. I am saying that like my guess is that it was this, but I, I think don't for know. our purposes, it was explicitly stated that it was a streaming service. Yes. So even if it wasn't Hulu, it falls under to the umbrella of the services we're talking about. Right. Anyway, um, this is a person who is a unionized actor uh, under SAG. Mm-hmm. And um, he was saying that he was offered a, a co-starring role, I believe, on a show, a pretty big name that had like a lot of big name actors and that uh, he was offered what he was offered was less than scale and less uh, and uh, with no um, potential to earn royalties because Hulu had had claimed that. Oh, sorry. I, well, I guess I can't say Hulu. I already said it was Hulu. Um, that that was our guess. But that Hulu had claimed that. Uh, that they were allowed to do such practices because they were classifying themselves as new media under like under this the SAG after contract. So yeah. listen, I'm not SAG, uh, so I'm not intimately acquainted with that. But new media typically is what like is is a designation that independent artists use to like kind of get around some of the more strict like union rules because they it's like it is assumed that you are lower budget and that you are starting and it is like specifically about internet produce content am right. i correct it's like if you're making a short for youtube right that's new content if you're making a new media. internet like five minute long web series right that's new media it's not for a big budget streaming house to use that's not the point but apparently and and again listen this is all like none of this is verified it is just kind of the like rumors that we so i want to say like allegedly there are rumors that Mm -hmm. like big streaming services like Hulu or Amazon Prime or others um, are trying to get around paying, you know, actors uh, the rate that they should be paid under SAG uh, by classifying themselves as new media because they are streaming services. Well, you sent me you sent me the text from the post and like the rate that he was offered per day was extremely low. It was less than scale. Yeah, it was extremely low. And again, no residuals, which if you're in a co-starring role on a big show that will potentially like residuals will pay your bills in perpetuity. If you, if you do it right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like to not be offered residuals is like, that's like that, that can fuck you to be clear. So like later he went back and clarified that like, it wasn't so much that it was him in particular who was being not, who was not being offered residuals. It was a part of like a package 
like I guess what they call a kit, like a package deal where Interesting. like um instead of like those things being negotiated for each individual actor that like that is kind of overall the the specifications that they put on a type of actor does that make sense yes and i i think that's kind of the issue with wga now which is like what they're doing with writers mm. yeah which is they're saying well no, no no we're not like we're not um just individually screwing over that writer what we're doing is we're we're lumping all these writers into a kit and we're offering this like mm. lump thing as a kit so like you can't negotiate on behalf of yourself because it's just the kit and there's nothing we can do about it uh and so that's what it that's what it sounded like to me but listen i mean i haven't i haven't googled it but if i had to guess um hulu brought in a fuck ton of money last year because Hulu was owned by Disney, which is literally like the world's largest media company. Yeah. Um. So it's not like Hulu's like struggling to pay people. No, not at all. Uh. And so it, it to me it, it is a bu- it's an abusive practice. Um, yeah. To pay people less than what their fucking union says they have to be paid, and for you to try and get around that with like specious claims. Yeah, and I, I mean I think the takeaway here is regardless of which streaming service it is, is that is that streaming services kind of exist in this weird in-between space between, like, your low-budget, like, YouTube, like, TV shows and documentaries and movies and, like, big-budget, like, network TVs and, like, movies, right? Like, like, they kind of exist in a weird in-between area, which is a conversation we can talk about in a minute when we kind of talk about the stuff happening with Oscars, right? And they're exploiting the fact that they're in a gray area to benefit them and potentially pay their employees less, right? If they're claiming their new media, which is for, you know, which is a designation for low budget companies, then like that's a problem because they're not, they're not low budget. They're not new media. Right. Um, they need to be paying their people. I think that's, I think regardless of what streaming service that is, like it's problematic that they are potentially. Right. And to be clear, like I said, like the, 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 the allegations um the person was not specific about it and also like that if it were hulu they're not the only people who are being accused of this like it seems absolutely. to be like an across the board strategy for several folks absolutely yeah um kind of piggybacking off of the idea that hulu is owned by disney here is the other yeah. um and this is i think a larger practice about just like generally like um uh you know media conglomerates and and studios but so a couple of days ago 21st century fox was ordered to pay the cast and creators of bones like 180 million dollars or something like that uh and the reason for this is because so you have to follow me here <laughs> disney disney bought 21st century fox right. i believe in 2017 uh disney also owns hulu okay uh, and so what happened was, is that Bones, which is the show that like, you know, those folks that, that got paid or who are going to get paid, uh, anyway, but Bones, um, has, had been like on the air for, I think at this point, like 10 or so years, 10, 11 years. For a while. For a very, I think longer. They are the longest running like dramatic series on, on Fox, like in history. Yeah. I believe that. Um, and I think they, they stopped making shows in 2017 anyway. Um, but so yeah. So um, when it came time for, for Fox to, um, to sell, like, the rights or, like, to, you know, to, like, license it for streaming or whatever, um, you would think that most companies would want to sell sure. to the highest bidder, right? Like, whoever is offering the most money is who wins. Mm-hmm. And that way, like, you know, the company wins and those people who get residuals or who get any kind of, like, money on the back end of that deal yeah, uh, would get the most amount of money. Uh, but what Fox did... <laughs> was Fox made a deal with 
Hulu, who is essentially just another wing of their parent company, Disney, uh, they made a deal with Hulu to essentially undersell what those rights may have been worth, right? Yeah. Like, they were like, sure, 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 yeah, like, we we accepted bids, but we took this one that was the lowest just because. Just because. Right. Uh, and so the producers and creators and actors of Bones were like, well, listen, you just basically took money out of our pockets, right? Like, mm-hmm. you deliberately made a sweetheart deal with another wing of parent company, and that means that we get less money. Yeah. And so they sued. Good for them. And um, I think, like I said, this was just like maybe three or four days ago, but like they finally, their arbitrator finally like came to, uh, made a ruling or whatever and uh, and said that Fox owes them um, $180 million. Huh. Um, most of that is punitive. And so Fox is like fighting back against that decision. Sure. Um, and they're saying like, well, he can't just decide that we owe them like $128 million worth of punitive pay, which like, listen, maybe. Yeah. But- <laughs> <laughs> but like I think that the the thing that for me that like that kind of clutched it for me was like so 180 million dollars is literally 0.6% of what Fox is worth. Yeah. 0.6%. And they probably will be willing to spend more money than that just to fight the to decision on principle. Yeah. Uh because they've already said that they're going to fight the decision. Interesting. At least part of it. They're not going to fight like the actual like the net amount that like it was determined that like that it was undersold plus the like the potential money that it could have reaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're fighting the part of it that is the punitive decision, which is yeah. $128 million. But still, like I think they'll easily spend that money trying to fight this case and they probably will win. And uh, and that's a problem. Yeah. I'm thinking about I actually did a show with um, three of the actors from Bones and one of the writers for it yeah. a few years ago. And I'm like, oh, they're all about to get a nice payout, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, listen, at a bare minimum, they're going to be splitting $50 million. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh, geez, like, good for good for them. They were all delightful. It was a bad show, but they were all delightful people to work <laughs> with, um, is what I'll say about that. So, yeah, I think... I think that's, again, I think that a little bit falls into, like, normal conglomerate corporate bullshit. But, like, look, it's still a problem. And I think streaming services are super ubiquitous. So we need to throw them. We need to call them out on it. Yes. While we're at it. So, like we kind of said, Amazon is really going to need its whole own episode because I'm a slave to Amazon Prime. But, boy, do I understand the problems with it. Yep. We just having this conversation yesterday. Um but uh, most of what I found in terms of like Amazon as a streaming service in like Amazon Studios is related to an individual named Roy Price. Ah, uh, yes. Roy Price was the head of Amazon Studios until 2017 when he was sort of ousted um, after one of the producers for Amazon. Um, her name was, um, I hope I say this right. I don't know if it's Isa or Issa. I think it's Isa. Isa. Isa Dick Hackett is her name. Um, and uh, she did a Hollywood Reporter interview about how he sexually harassed her um, back at San Diego Comic-Con in 2015. Um, and this kind of like led to him to eventually resign. Uh, it kind of came out. So, OK, I'm going to apologize right now if I laugh when I am explaining any of this. It's, be- it's not because I am laughing at sexual assault and uh, harassment because those are horrible things. It's because... <laughs> this is the most absurd. Right. Like, it's like was so this guy over on drugs? Why did no one say anything? Like, I have to laugh so I don't cry because it's the most absurd shit I've ever heard. No, I totally get it. It's like the circumstances are so absurd. You can't help but laugh. I, I don't know what else to do. I genuinely don't. Okay. So apparently at San Diego Comic-Con, Miss um, Hackett is in a taxi with Roy Price. 
Um, and he basically comes on to her and starts telling her about how much she would love his dick and how much he wants to have sex with her. And she's like, okay, a few things. A, I'm not interested. B, I'm a lesbian. C, I'm married with a wife and children. Like, these are three very good reasons why I don't want anything we'll to do no. with your dick. <laughs> like, outside of the fact that this is wildly inappropriate in a business context. Right. Um, but he, like, just came on to her really strongly. Apparently, there was another executive from Amazon named uh, Michael Paul in the taxi with them when this happened, who apparently, you know, didn't do anything about it. So that's cool. Yeah. He was um, like, I, well, I didn't hear anything. Oh. Yeah. Well, I don't know. And then so later, like, again, while they're still at San Diego Comic-Con, she's in the middle of having a conversation with another executive. And this this man, Roy Price, oh, walks up to this woman yells the words anal sex in her ear and then presumably just walks away i guess i don't i i can't i don't know what happened after that but uh, what what <sighs> i don't what possesses a person to do this why does no one like why is uh, i have so many questions and right, like how do you get here as a human right <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> Exactly. What were the choices you made to where you think that this is a good thing to do? I guess because you continue to get away with it until you don't. Well, which seems like is essentially what happened. Um, apparently, Rose McGowan apparently also spoke to Roy Price about how Harvey Weinstein had sexually assaulted her and he failed to take any action on this. Hackett apparently lodged a formal complaint with Amazon Studios about what Roy Price did to her and it doesn't seem like there was it seems like they opened an investigation but there was no actual follow-through in terms of like punishment or suspension it wasn't until we were in like kind of the throes of the me too movement she was like oh well like i can definitely find some sort of magazine that will hear my story and maybe i can get justice this way listen if you hear nothing her. else if you hear nothing else in this episode hear this hr is there to protect the company that you work for hr is not there for you yeah exactly right so like it, ma- it t- makes total sense to me that if she went and reported this to the company about the fucking CEO or president or whoever the fuck he was, yeah. that they didn't do anything uh, because HR is there to protect the company. Now, what they may have done is gone and talked to him and be like, hey, you have to fucking cool it. Yeah, you have to stop it. But of course she didn't receive a new address. So just if you're a young person listening to this, no. <laughs> Document everything. Report it to HR for sure, but they're not there to help you. Okay, that's all. That's my yeah. like. That was my soapbox moment. No, I like it when we have our random words of wisdom yes. in episodes. Like I, I'm into it. <laughs> um, I'm super into it. So it's also worth noting that like around the time when he was kind of ousted, several different. Uh, so he was already sort of under fire for kind of uh, not being great in the content he greenlit shall we say Uh um there was a production that he was kind of uh kind of gunning to get done called shanghai snow uh it was about a woman sold into sex slavery and it was apparently so misogynistic that the showrunner on it was almost like yo i gotta like i can't yeah and so they eventually brought in a woman who had wrote written for dawson's creek and charm to kind of come in and they were basically like uh, make this less misogynistic, please fix it so we can like produce this. Um, and so they were, but like it was apparently like just horrible because it was, it just sounded bad in every just sense. Just kind of, of like exploitative and just like, just, nah. yeah, like it was like this woman who was like, you know, drugged and raped and sold into sex slavery, but it seemed exploitative in the worst ways in terms of how it handled that content. Uh, and that, you know, thankfully quietly died with him, it seems like. Um, 
But, you know, he also repeatedly passed on female-centric shows, including shows like Big Little Lies and The Handmaid's Tale, both of which swept the Emmys. That should be enough for him to lose his job, I feel. But whatever. Yeah, like, like he was he was passing on like content like that that other companies were picking up just because they were female driven. But then again, so um, I remember when this show came out, Good Good Girls Revolt. Yeah, I heard excellent things about I it. I heard great things about it. I remember people sending it to me because they're like, yo, I know you're a super vocal feminist. This seems like it's right up your alley. Yeah. And I remember watching the trailers and being like, yeah, that looks super dope. I don't think I had Amazon Prime at the time, which is why I didn't watch it. But I was like, yeah, that looks really good. Uh, it was canceled after one season, despite having good critical I reviews. I remember reading articles about how upset like a lot of critics, but also a lot of fans were because they were like, well, it got great ratings and it got a lot of attention and it got great press. And so there really was like no actual justification to to end the show. Like it was doing everything it was supposed to do. Yeah. And so allegedly it was because it was like underperforming, like it didn't do as well, but it was also like they didn't promote it very much yeah. which is part of roy price's like he didn't direct them to promote it as much as they did other shows right this all just kind of like generally seems to point to a culture of misogyny exactly and yeah. and well and the show was canceled right before he left and so there's a lot of articles where you can read like the cast of good girls revolt kind of being like yeah like it's really great that this horrible misogynist was fired from our company but like we can't help feeling like it's very meta because our show was canceled and it was his decision. Yeah. And it almost feels retaliatory that like we were canceled while he was being removed from the company. So that's cool. Um, but like the, it, it's also worth noting the one big award that Price's leadership did get the studio was Manchester by the sea, which, <laughs> you know, of course is uh, famous for starring Casey Affleck, who was also accused of sexual oh. misconduct. Someone please explain to me why Casey Affleck still works. I don't just I don't even know. So it seems like Amazon Prime, at least from what I could tell, his real problem was Roy Price, who is thankfully gone now. Yeah. Um, we can get into other stuff with content. Like Transparent's gonna need its whole an episode, but like just in terms of business practices, that's kind of uh misogyny was super rampant with them. Uh, and they just kind of just didn't address it for a long time. Yeah, until yeah. the Me Too movement, yeah. which, you know, thankfully saw a lot of heads rolling. The last thing I have is sort of this conversation that has just come up since we're just on the heels of the Oscars, which revolve around streaming services being Oscar eligible, basically. Okay. Uh, Roma obviously took a few Academy Awards. Yeah, Best Director and Best Foreign Film. Yeah. And so right afterwards, it kind of came to light. Steven Spielberg, in particular, uh, was like, hey. Uh, we should change the Academy Awards that will exclude films like Netflix. Basically, his position is like, well, they're more like TV. They should qualify for Emmys and not Oscars. They sh you know, should be like made for TV movies. The reasoning for this ranges. There's a lot of different reasons. Um, some are box office. For some are that like Netflix doesn't report box office numbers. Uh, Netflix doesn't respect the 90 day theatrical release window like traditional films do. Uh, movies become available instantly and immediately, like, across the globe. So some of it is also, like, a theatrical purity. They're like, well, like, movies need to be experienced yeah. in the theater. None of those are, like, reasons laid out by the Academy for not, a, a like, considering a film. It should be clear that Roma, like, did, for all the, like, actual rules that exist in the Academy, Roma 
did qualify. Right. I was going to say, like, let's be clear that, like, none of these films that we're talking about are films that broke any rules, like any governor academy rules. Exactly. So, like, that should be clear. But they're kind of having a conversation about, like, what does we need to change this? Um, a lot of it seems like to hinge on this idea of like purity of like, oh, well, films are meant to be experienced in theaters, which I get and respect um, because there is a difference between watching a movie at home and watching a movie in the theater. I agree. Um, I will definitely acknowledge that. So basically what's happening is the Academy governors are meeting to discuss this, which I should note that is just the governors of the Academy. It is not the full Academy. Right. Um, we've already talked about a lot about how Academy voters are generally old and white and male. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is probably gonna be the oldest and the whitest. Of, <laughs> and like, y'all, I gotta say, this hurts me to like talk dirt on Steven Spielberg a little bit. My like big LA claim to fame is I got to do an event with him and he was the nicest person in the world and was an absolute treasure to work with. And like, is one I'm of my sure. favorite celebrities I've ever worked with. I'm sure he's just a gym. <laughs> but, but I like, think he's 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 a little old white guy. <laughs> well, but I think I think but like even I think the the important part of this to kind of address is that like I think that what he is is heavily invested in like and perpetuating these kind of old ways of doing things. Yes. Um and so it's not it's not beneficial to him to have to compete with Netflix as a film studio. And so that, you know, like that's something that he's willing to fight against without considering the fact that like there are people who traditionally would be locked out of the studio system who are able to make these films uh, and that that is something that is worthwhile. And is that is not necessarily a threat to any of the other studios as far as I'm concerned. It's like if you guys were willing to like actually like listen to the criticisms that people have been like leveling at you for the last, I don't know, 80, 90 years. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, like, if you actually, like, seem to give a shit about listening to, like, the perspectives of these people who have been saying forever, like, hey, could you please let us in the door and make a movie about, you know, people of color that isn't just, like, tragedy or poverty porn? Mm -hmm. Or, like, do you know what I mean? Like, if you had been at all amenable to, like, to changing your practices and, like, being more welcome to these people, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. But this is a bed that y'all made. And Netflix came in and they they are meeting a need and now you're upset that they're meeting that need and that they're and that they're producing content that's arguably just as good as what the studios are doing. Like, yeah. And well, and that's exactly it. Right. Like, that's exactly the crux of the issue. And they're like Ava DuVernay and Franklin Leonard have all kind of like come out and been like, yo, like we oppose this idea. Like we should let Netflix like as long as they meet the rules that exist, we we shouldn't try to disqualify them because you know, you guys aren't giving these marginalized voices a chance and they're filling this need. And like, uh, you know, Franklin Leonard, who is the founder of The Blacklist, has basically straight up said, he's like, hey, until Hollywood catches up and, you know, like everyone has access to theatrical releases, you know, these big studios do, there's no reason for us to disclude streaming services. Right. Um, he's like, I, and he's like, I totally value the, the importance of the theatrical experience. I'm not here to discount that. But until everyone has equal opportunity, we should not be discluding them. And that's basically where I fall on this. Right. Like, I mean, like, I feel like Steven Spielberg, you know, like you would have a lot more or he would have a lot more of an argument if it's like if you would expend at least as much time talking about institutional roadblocks to these same people. Right. As as you have spent on talking about how these streaming services shouldn't be included because they're inextricably tied and you should know that. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, uh, yeah, to me, I was just like, this seems like the perfect way to combat Oscars so white. And it feels like the Academy is 
tried to come in and stomp on that basically by excluding streaming services. Yeah. Um, and that's a problem. So, you know, fun. That's what I got. Is that what you got? That's, that's it. Okay. Verdicts? Sure. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's me first. I think so. Okay, y'all. Real talk. It's going to have to be a thumbs up for me because <laughs> I could not do this podcast without streaming services. That's real. There would be no podcast if there were no streaming services. <laughs> I'll be super honest with you about this. Uh, that was kind of a joke. I haven't actually thought about how I feel. I mean, I, it's going to be, yes, I'm going to continue to use Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime whether I like to or not. I think the fact that they're publishing content that's really, really good uh, that would not ever otherwise be greenlit is really important. Um, I think they're, a lot of their business practices are bullshit, but I don't find it any worse than anywhere else. So I feel kind of like I can't single them out for it, uh -huh. if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, like some of like the Netflix original TV shows are like some of the best stuff I've watched. I need to get caught back up on The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. It's going to hurt me to do it, but I probably should. Also, like, look, do I just straight up have either the Golden Girls or Bob's Burgers running in the background <laughs> at all times in my home? Yes. So, <laughs> like, I think it's going to be a yes. Also, fuck cable. Like, yeah. it's... It's a, it's maybe a little bit of a less served to evil situation. No, um, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I think that I generally agree with you. I think that if we are comparing um, just kind of like how even in the last 10 years, streaming services have revolutionized how people interact with media mm -hmm. and, um, and how we um, both consume, but also create content. Uh, it is, it, it's um, that, I think that that contribution um, has been, so incredibly valuable that we can't go back and we can't like throw, throw them out. Right. I agree. Um, and I think that they are, as we mentioned several times before, they're doing the really important work of giving opportunities to people who have um, historically been kind of locked out of access to um, traditional, the traditional studio systems and the way to, to create content like this. Um, I think that what you're seeing is like with generally with any kind of like, gigantic business or corporation yeah. is that they are leaning into uh unscrupulous practices and i think that it is up to us to like at least try to like call that out and push back on it now listen do am i under any like you know um uh belief that uh <laughs> after Hulu, that jeff bezos is gonna listen to this yeah and, like, that, like, Bob Iger is gonna be like maybe <laughs> maybe fox shouldn't have like made that dumb deal with you know i mean yeah like the, I mean, like when you're owned by Disney, there's no way that that me saying it, that like us pushing back on this is going to make any difference right. unless, you know, we're talking about like regulation through legislation. Right. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that ultimately so far what they are providing for us um, is more good than uh, than evil. I agree. <laughs> and so because of that, I will still give streaming services generally a thumbs up me too okay then well then that will do it for us this week um this was streaming services and it was fun and yeah. i felt very awkward researching for it while i ran just netflix in the background <laughs> exactly i was like oh this is fine so uh if you like what we're doing on the show and you want to support us uh you can get at us on patreon um you can go to patreon.com slash your fave is problematic and become a donor um, big thank you to uh, Margaret Glass for becoming a new donor. And oh boy, I'm going to say this name so wrong. And I'm so sorry. 
Tadmak Mathuna. I'm so sorry. Please, um, like, tweet at me about how to say this right or no, something. No, I, I think he's in our group, right? Is he's, he? He's, he lives in Ireland. Yes. I'm pretty sure he's Irish. And so I don't know if – I feel like he gave us, like, a tutorial on how to properly say his name a couple I'm, of weeks ago oh, in okay. a comment. Um, and I wish that I remembered that right now. I think I, – I feel like I missed that comment because uh, Facebook just stopped notifying me about posts in our group. And I hate it. Uh, <laughs> that's fine. I could also be thinking of someone different. Anyway, that's fine. Anyways, um, I, but they are from the UK because they have a UK email address. Okay. Um. I probably butchered your name, and I'm so sorry. But thank you for giving us money. Yeah, you're, thanks. You're a goddamn delight. To you and Margaret. Margaret, yeah, you're also you're a just all the best. Um, and thank you to all of our other Patreon patrons, um, for being so great. Also, if you haven't checked out our February episode, um, our bonus episode on Reagan, do that if you yes, want to access to that. Um, then you just have to become a five dollar a month Patreon mm-hmm. member. And then this is the month I want to get some of the other stuff up and running. Um, because we're y'all. I've been sick for a month and a half, so like. We're working on it real yeah. hard over here, but we're going to get it all up for we're you guys. We're getting better every day. Yeah, every better. Every, every day. Um, but yeah, uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can tweet at us at podcastyfip and you can email us at problematicfavepodcast at gmail.com. Um, oh, I'm going to throw this out there uh, just because we haven't said it in a while. If there's a topic you'd like to see us cover, uh, we have a Google Doc. It's in our Facebook group. So join our Facebook group if you're not in it already. I also uh, think someone added a tab for Problematic Jukebox. I did. Oh, you did? I did, but then someone added stuff to it. Nice. Uh, so there's there's two tabs now. There's one for um, topics for episodes and one for Problematic Jukebox. So we'll circle back and cover some songs again here soon. Um, so go give us suggestions for what you want to hear us talk about. I'm really excited about it. Also, if you are um, a relatively new listener or if you are a person who just has never given us a rating, if you would, please just uh, <laughs> rate, review, uh, go to iTunes. <laughs> Tell everyone how you feel about us. Yeah. Um, if you love us, tell your friends. If you hate us, tell your enemies. Uh, since this is an episode, we're asking for everything. Yeah. Um, you can get at me on Twitter at the loveliest Liz. And I'm on Twitter at Annie Wokely. Yeah. So join us. Uh, that's it. Um, we'll see you guys next week, but not because we're a podcast. Um, <laughs> remember, everyone, oh your fave is problematic. But you don't have to be. Stay well. On that note, us kids, peace.